Well, uh, thank y'all for having me this morning. Now, I am not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but in my observations, when it comes to vacations, I think you can usually put people in one of two different categories. There is the meticulous time planner, and there is the, I don't know, we'll see when we get there. And I don't know why this is, but these two types of people always seem to marry each other. And so in every household, as you approach vacation, there comes that conversation of, honey, I don't know when I'm going to wake up. I'm on vacation. I'll wake up when I wake up, and then we'll see. And there's the, no, we will wake up probably around 7, because at 7.45 we're going to be in this diner, and we will eat until approximately 8.20, at which time we will leave and board the 8.24 bus that will take us to our 9 o'clock morning activity. Okay? Now, I don't know about you, maybe I'm the only one who's ever experienced a variant of that conversation. Anyone? Don't raise your hands. It's okay. That's probably wise. Now, I understand that when the stakes are low, playing it by ear is probably an okay strategy. Because if it goes disastrous, there's no really harm done. But the bigger and the more important a trip is, the more important it is to have more than just the generalities planned. Where am I going? We need to have the details planned to the nth degree sometimes. I remember for myself, every couple of years, I would take a group of high school choir students to New York City. And on this particular trip, my last trip, I wanted to cut out the middleman and give the kids the best trip possible, so I planned it all myself, okay? Mistake number one. Um, And it was one of the most taxing things I have ever done, okay? From the moment they woke up to the mode of transportation, the cost of transportation, the morning activity, the meal, the lunch activity, the afternoon, the evening, every waking moment had to be planned. Because that's the only way you keep high schoolers out of trouble. You just wear them out, right? Now, why do I tell you this? It's because when we are going on a trip, when we are going into an unknown territory, it's important for us not just to have the general idea. We need to have the details planned. Where am I going? What's the best restaurants? Where are the best restaurants? Where are the best coffee shops? How can I have the best experience possible and really get a flavor for where I am? Okay? So today we're going to talk about one of the most neglected topics in the whole of theology. We're going to talk about heaven. And we're going to look at our great trip. And we're going to apply those same principles. Not just where am I going, but how can I prepare for it and also How can what I know about heaven right now impact the way I live today? And so that's going to be what we're talking about. Um, So today we're going to break down that topic into three different compartments. First, we're going to talk about the where. Where has God given us information on heaven? And then we're going to look at the why. Why has God laid it out like that? And then we'll break it down to the, so now what? How can I pull that information into our daily lives? Because Um, I think that God has given us a lot of information on heaven, and he has a specific purpose that we can implement in our lives because of that information. So, before we look at our main first question of where, I want to first kind of give us the big overarching idea that is going to drive this engine of today's message. And the overarching idea is this, is that God has left us breadcrumbs scattered throughout the human experience that constantly point back to the reality of heaven beyond. And what what we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at these breadcrumbs, and we're going to analyze them and see what we can find out about them. Have you ever seen, like, the new Sherlock, like the Benedict Cumberbatch, or the new Sherlock reboot? It's like you walk up to a crime scene, everyone's scratching their heads, they don't know what's going on, but Sherlock will find this piece of dirt on a table, and he'll be like, hmm, and he'll rattle off 20 facts about that piece of dirt, 
its composition, its origin, and the only part of the city that you can find this kind of dirt. So go over to this part of town, on this block, in this street, in this house, in this room, and you'll find your culprit. Case solved. Any other questions? You know, today we are going to look at heaven in that same way. We're going to look at those breadcrumbs, and we're going to follow the trail where they lead. Okay? Um, so the first thing I want to do, I want to look at the first clue that God has given us, and it's by looking inside our own hearts. Now, I know at first glance that sounds really kind of new age and vague in general, but I promise it's a really good place to start, okay? Because when we ask the question of like when we're thinking about heaven and eternity and the future, we have to think, well, why am I asking that question? Why are my thoughts going there? I mean, like, do our cats plan for the distant future? Do our dogs on a walk stop to watch a sunset? Do rodents sit there and meditate about the nature of eternity, heaven, and the future? No, it's ridiculous. I remember years ago, I went to the Grand Canyon, and uh, you get to the edge of the Grand Canyon, and you're standing on this cliff, and you're just looking out at this grandeur. I remember I was so distracted because there were so many ground squirrels everywhere. They were like crawling in and out. They were going their little tunnels, and they'd sit, and they'd just perch out and look over the edge. And one time, there was this one beside me, and I'm like, man, what's up? All right. You're looking out over this grand landscape. Okay, and apparently I'm not the only one who did this. There's other pictures online that did this. Let's see this one up on the slide. Um, <clears throat> now, can you imagine what this squirrel is thinking? What is going through this squirrel's mind? When I consider the works of your hands, O Lord, what is squirrel that you are mindful of him and the son of squirrel that you take thought of him? That you have made him a little lower than the angels but have crowned him with glory and honor. No, that's ridiculous. Look with me if you turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. At least I think that's where it is. It is, good. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Now, this verse comes after this beautiful passage that many of us have read before that talks about there is a time to be born and a time to die. A time to laugh and a time to cry. A time to dance and a time to not dance. Things like that. But it's all of these images that are based in time. Transients. Things are just moving. There's a time to sow and a time to reap. And it just begs the question. You know, it's like the system of time and transients and nothing's permanent. And we have to ask the question, is there anything that's outside of that system that's not bound to time? If you're a parent of young children, you know that Frozen 2 came out on DVD two weeks ago. And if you're like me and you've watched that movie 10 times in the last 14 days, you know that Olaf is preoccupied with this question in Frozen 2. It's like everything is changing. Is there anything that's permanent? Now, he doesn't come to the right conclusion, but eternity has been set in the human heart. Okay? Now, it also says that but no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So we've got eternity, but no one can wrap their hands around it. No one can understand what God has done from beginning to end. So it's like God has put this carrot in front of us on a string, right? And it's like forever in our sight, but forever out of our reach. But God's not that mean. He takes that carrot and he breaks it off and gives us a piece. And we're like, hmm, that's good. Oh, and then another bite. And you're like, yes. And there's this promise at the end that he's going to sniff the string, and give it to us in full. The promise of heaven is coming. Now, that's when we look inside our own hearts, but there's more places that we can go. I want us to take a closer look that God has left inside his word. 
okay? Now, the way I've broken up inside his word is I've broken up into six different milestones. There were a lot more. Say thank you. You're welcome. I only gave you six, okay? Um, And these six milestones represent shifts in our understanding of how we're to understand heaven, okay? And it's caught up in this idea called progressive revelation. Progressive revelation is where God doesn't just explain everything at the outset. He gives you a set of information that you have enough to go on, and then he'll reveal a little bit more and then a little bit more. It's kind of like driving into the mountains. Have we ever driven up into Colorado from Texas? And you go through the cities, and finally the mountains sort of come up on the horizon. It looks like this one big blob of mountain. And then as you get closer, you start to see field of depth. You start to see, oh, that's not just one mountain. That's like four mountains. Okay, there, and then there's one behind it. Ooh, and that one's really big. And then as the closer you get, you see the, the colors and the hues and the, and the depth, right? That's how God reveals heaven to us. So let's look at our first clue on how God reveals heaven at the first time. The first place we see God's template for heaven is in the Garden of Eden. Look with me in Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now in this first picture of heaven, it's really important um, that we see the elements that are at play here, okay? Because there's not a lot of filler material in the narrative, and so we have, but what we do see are these elements that are gonna come back again and again and crescendo until a final climax, okay? Now what we do see in Eden is this, we see mankind and God together in the same place. We see man settled in a place that is specially made for him, his pleasure and God's glory. We see God providing lavishly, the the, the trees out of the ground, the good for fruit, you know, good for the eyes. And we have this image of the tree of life, which is this image of God's eternal life and mankind being able to go and basically pluck that fruit and be able to partake of God's eternal life, okay? Those are the kind of the images that are at play, but most of you who've read the next page of the Bible, we blow it, okay? We lose Eden, um, we lose the blessing, and so now instead of us being together with God, there's separation. Now instead of there just being abundance and blessing, we have pulled a curse into the mix, okay? And the rest of the biblical narrative is basically God stepping into time with us and taking that curse head on, negating that curse so that he can bring us back to a better Eden 2.0, Okay? So let's move on. Now, even though we lost Eden, God never really let that fire of Eden die. He kept the coals, and he kept them hot. And he brought it with Israel in the tabernacle. Now, we talked a little bit about this last time in November when we talked about Sabbath and rest, but inside the tabernacle is a picture of the Garden of Eden, starting with the candelabra, the menorah. It's a five-foot solid gold candelabra. Okay, not something you would find at Pier 1. It has seven different branches, candles on each side, and inside the tabernacle, it is the only piece of light inside that tent because it's a sealed-in tent. It's dark. It's the only piece of light is a representation of the tree of life, the promise of Eden shining. Now, inside the tabernacle, there's two compartments. There's the t- this whole thing is called the tent of meeting. Okay? There's the holy place, and then there's the holy of holies. Okay, 
the holy place, priests are allowed to come in, change out the showbread and these sort of things. The holy of holies is where the, only the high priest once a year on Yom Kippur can come in and offer the day of atonement, offer the atoning sacrifice. But in the, the holy place, you have the menorah. You have that light of Eden. And then across from it, you have a table of showbread, 12 different loaves on a table, and it's the symbol of God's provision for his people, okay, that God is providing. God is the one who provides the bread. And then across from that, or aside from that, you have what's called the altar of incense. It's where the priest would come and, and burn various herbs, herbs, herbs. I don't know how you say it. But anyway, the smoke would rise up, and it would fill the tent. And it would even go over the veil, over into the Holy of Holies. And if you've ever heard David pray about, like, let my prayers be a sweet aroma to you. Let my prayers ascend before you. It's this incense imagery of it going and going over the veil. And so you have this image of communion with God inside the temple, inside the sanctuary. You have God's provision, you have God's communion, and you have God's promise of Eden on another wall. Now, that is inside the tabernacle and the presence of God in the holies of holies, in the holy of holies. So we have this encapsulated picture of the Garden of Eden and the promise of heaven just pulled down inside this one little tent. But God is not done speaking yet, okay? Um, because the next place he goes is he expounds on the idea of heaven through the messianic prophecies, okay? Look with me in Isaiah, um, Isaiah chapter 11. Yes, Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 10. It says, the wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear and their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. And in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. So during a time when Israel is going through a rough patch of deep rebellion and consequences, you might even call it Israel's teenage years, okay? It's their rebellious teenage years. It's nothing but rebellion and consequences, okay? The prophets come to Israel and say like, yes, you're making terrible choices. Yes, this is bad. Yes, this is divine punishment, but this punishment will not last forever. On the other side is Messiah. Messiah's gonna come and he's gonna bring peace and there's gonna be peace between you and God. There's gonna be peace between you and the other nations. There's gonna be peace between you and the animals. Okay, God's shalom is going to come and wrap up everything. And for the Israelite, they had never heard God's future plans for them described in those terms before. And it gave God's people a different way, a new way, to think about the future. And now we come to a pivot point. We come to the opening chapters of the New Testament and we are introduced to the drum roll, please. Can y'all give me a drum roll? The one, the only, Messiah, Son of God, Jesus Christ. Boom! Yes! He came. It's amazing. And what God's going to do is he's going to take this garden imagery and this temple imagery and he's going to push it together, this messianic prophet imagery, and he's going to push it together and encapsulate that in Jesus Christ. Look with me in John chapter 1, uh, verse 14. It says, the word, I'm going to stop right there. 
you know John 1, 1, it's like the word was with God, the word was God, the word, you know, in the beginning was the word. Okay, so the word is God. God, okay. The word became flesh. It fleshified. It became someone and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Now, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Dwelling among us is the same words that we use for tabernacle and tent. You could also translate it, the word became flesh and camped out with us. Okay? Now, as Rick was saying earlier, he's like, for the normal people, the presence of God, that tent, that holy place, was forever outside of their view. They were in the courtyard. They couldn't come into the holy place. They couldn't go into the most holy place. They were forever excluded from getting close to the presence of God. They could only get so close. But this just says that the word became flesh and then right in the middle of us put his whole tent and tabernacle right inside the common man. And so you have this picture of God coming to man and it's like, yay, party. Like God's here. Isn't this great? That's enough to get fired up about, right? God's not, ta- God's not done. That doesn't even take into account Jesus' ministry. Okay? Because Jesus' ministry, no one had seen these things before. Jesus gets onto the scene at his first miracle at the wedding of Canaan, and he turns water into wine. And he's like, oh, no, no, because in my kingdom, this is going to be a party. All right? We're going to be having fun. And people are like, what? Free drinks? Are you serious? Sign me up. I'm in. And then he goes, and he feeds 5,000 people. 5,000 people who have been following him for three days without food. They're hungry people. So when they get their food, they're not just eating light, okay? They're stuffing until they can stuff no more. And God says that out of those five loaves and a few fish, he said there were seven baskets of leftovers. And these were people that did not leave leftovers. They did not do takeout, okay? They stuffed themselves, and there was leftover. Because Jesus says, because in my kingdom, everyone's full. Everyone's satisfied. People come up to him who are enslaved by sin, who are enslaved to the powers of the demonic realm, who are enslaved to sin and Satan. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. In my kingdom, there's freedom. Be gone. And the demons run screaming. They're like, who is this guy? He goes onto a boat in the storm. And he's like, oh, no, no. In my kingdom, there's no threat of death. Peace, be still. And the waves calm. You remember what the disciples said? Like, what kind of man is this? He is reshaping the definition of the kingdom. People come and say, hey, I'm sick, or I'm disabled, or I'm crippled, I'm infirm. And he says, oh, no, no, not in my kingdom. Everyone's healthy. Take up your bed and walk. Rise. Receive your sight. Jesus is sweeping across Israel, and the kingdom is in his wake. Jesus, my daughter has died. Oh, no, no, no. Not in my kingdom. There is no death. I'm the God of the living. Rise. Lazarus, come forth. In my kingdom is life. Jesus is sweeping across Israel, bringing the kingdom with it. It is enough to get fired up, right? Everyone is like, yes, sign me up for this kingdom. That's my king. I'm following him. But we blow it again. Israel rejects their king rather definitively. And the kingdom is postponed. But God knew this was going to happen. He planned for it. And so at this point, God introduces the next player, the next player in his uh, plans of heaven at Pentecost. Okay? Will you look with me in Acts chapter 2? You'll see what we mean by this. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. 
Suddenly, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Who is this agent of heaven? It's the Holy Spirit. And if you can accept it, heaven just got even closer than when it was Jesus. Because when it was just Jesus, it's just one man bringing the kingdom with him. But now when you send the Holy Spirit, there's multiple people with the Spirit of God in them. Thousands of people, millions of people bringing the kingdom with them as they go. This is what Jesus was trying to tell his disciples in John um, 16 when he was telling them he's about to be arrested and killed. He says, but I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I'm going away because if I don't go away, the advocate will not be able to come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus sends us the Holy Spirit, that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus just changed the rules of heaven again. We have a new player on the field. And with the Holy Spirit inside of you, heaven just came that much closer. And with that, we move to our final milestone, the last trailer, the last teaser before the movie finally comes out. And we get to the vision of John in the book of Revelation. Now, we're about to read a longer quotation of scripture. And I want to prepare you for that. And I want to kind of tell you what we're doing with this because it's, it's mind-blowing. John is going to take these images from Eden, the images from the temple, images from the Messiah, messianic prophecies, images from Jesus, images from the church at Pentecost, and he's going to pull them all together into a glorious climax. Jesus Christ is at front and center, taking the charge, bringing everything to its rightful conclusion. And you were like, yes, but there's more. John makes a literary move here that is stunning. He's about to pull the rug out from all of our feet. Feet, feet, feet. The move here is this. He says, all this time you've been thinking about heaven as two different places. Of you over here and God over here. And then when Messiah came, God came over here and all is good. It's a party. But that was never God's end game. You see, when Messiah comes the second time, he's bringing all of heaven with him. And we are gonna, heaven and earth are going to collide. There is gonna be a cosmic wedding between heaven and earth. No more separation, no more division. They come together and unite. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. For he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And I will be their God. and They will be my children. One of the angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, 
come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in its city, and the servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will forever be on their foreheads. For there will be no more night. There will be no more need of light of lamp or light of the sun. For the Lord God will illuminate them, and they will reign forever and ever. I guarantee you, for every one of us in this room, our vision of heaven is far, far too small. God has shown us enough of heaven to go on. And that will bring us to a question of why. Why has God laid out heaven so beautifully for us? What purpose does he have in giving it like this? And there's a lot of purposes that I could go on to, but I just want to kind of drill down into one. And that's heaven gives us a focal point and a hope for the future. Look with me in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 and 19. It says, For I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that they will reveal in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. And I know for myself, when I read these words, I always kind of sit back on my heels. And it's like, Paul, really? Our sufferings are nothing? Okay, it's like, there's a lot of junk in this world. There's a lot of messed up things that are going on in my life and in my neighbors, and they're nothing, really? And then I look back and think, this was Paul, okay? This was Paul who, drug out by his collar, beaten with rods, stoned three times and left for dead, starved, shipwrecked, prisoned, killed. No one can look at Paul's life and say, man, that guy had an easy ride. Sure, it's easy to be a follower of Christ when you got it that good. Paul knew about suffering, but he knew how to compare it. Because if I were looking at you and me, we could easily compare our pain and suffering meter, our suffering-o-meter. Like, hey, you're this, you're have this much suffering in life, I have this much. And he says, but that's when you compare it with each other. You compare that with the glory that's to be revealed. That's not apples to apples anymore. That's apples to a galaxy. There is no comparison. They don't even belong in the same sentence together. Hebrews 12, 2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, Paul and Jesus both had a hope of the future beyond our present suffering. The joy set before him is what got Jesus through the cross. We're told to put our eyes on Jesus, who happens to be our joy, and get us through our crosses. 
Church, for 2,000 years, the hope and the fixation, the focal point of heaven has been a north star for us. It has helped us get through trials and tribulations and even martyrdom. But what happens whenever that star grows dim and our focus wanes? We start to see other stars come out, lesser stars, lesser glories, moving stars. And then pretty soon, before you know it, you're traveling in a totally different direction. So what can we do about that? How can we stop? How can we keep that North Star front and center in our lives? What do we do with this information? And the first thing that I would tell us to do is that we can reject false heavens. Now, we talked earlier about Israel during the times of the prophets. During this time, they were in deep rebellion. You remember? We read from Isaiah, like right up there with Ahab and Jezebel, not the highlightable years of Israel's history, right? And... <clears throat> What happened is in this history, by this time, on different mountaintops throughout Israel, there would be altars, high places, tops of mountains that they would worship foreign deities, Asherahs and Baals and so forth. And what was kind of sick and twisted about it is that they would take the same symbols that was used to worship God and they would put it on these mountains. And so the Asherah poles were essentially this fake representation of the tree of life, and people would go up there and do all sorts of nasty things. They would worship their gods how they wanted, when they wanted, with who they wanted. They said, I'm gonna make my own tree of life. But it was a false tree. And only a few kings in the whole history of Israel had the guts to do something about it. Um, One of which was Asa. Uh, Second Chronicles 14 says, Uh, Verse 2 says, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He removed the foreign altars in the high places. He smashed the sacred stones, and he cut down the Asherah poles. And he commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and obey his laws and commands. So for us, we're in the exact same situation. We've got high places in our culture. We've got those different altars that we can go to and do what we want. But... These are lesser stars. These are lesser glories. And even though they might be good in and of themselves, some of it maybe you would say um, sex offers the, the greatest pleasure. That's just an appetizer. That's showing how great the pleasure is to be in communion, to know someone and for them to know you, that perfect communion. That's just a, that's just a breadstick. That's an appetizer. That's tortilla chips, right? Money and power, Money and power is just a crumb. It shows you what it means for God to be your provider, how rich his provision is. The altars that we go to, folks, are are breadsticks and salad. They're appetizers. They're made to point to the real thing. They are not the thing in and of themselves. These things are shadows, tricks of the light. God has it in substance and offers it to us. And we spend our time filling up on salad and breadsticks. Our food's not even here yet, right? Don't raise your hand if you've ever done that, because, right, okay. (laughs) So yes, let's turn away from false heavens. Let's reject false heavens. But what do we do in place of it? I would say that we pursue the real heaven. How do we dislodge an affection of our heart? If one of those altars are things that your heart is really drawn to, how do you dislodge that? How do you dislodge an affection? You replace it with an even deeper and more vibrant affection. I'm gonna shamelessly steal this illustration from Ben Stewart, who says, in the opening scene of 
Romeo and Juliet, you come across Romeo who's like, oh, Rosalind, Rosalind, I'll never see a sunneth rise until it has Rosalind's face. Anyway, so he's heartbroken over Rosalind. Mercutio and Benvolio, they come and say, Romeo, you know what you need? We need to go to a party. Come on, let's go. He goes to a party and he sees Juliet. He falls head over heels for Juliet. And by the end, he's like, Rosalind who? Rosalind who? It's like a high school and middle school scrapbook. Those pictures that are all cut in the middle. <laughs> and you're like, so who is that, who is that, that hand that's on your shoulder? You're like, mm, I, 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 I cut that picture out. Like, you don't want to know. That's a lesser star. We'll just say that way. It's like, that was just an X. We're not going to talk about that. It was not, not something worth talking about. So we can pursue heaven now. Here in this church, in this city, in this country, in this political climate, we can go and pursue heaven right where we're at. Because here's the trick. Here's what really happened at Pentecost. Whenever the Holy Spirit came into the church, he put all of that temple. He put the menorah, put the showbread, the altar of incense, the holy of holies, all of that temple got compressed and put inside of you. We don't go to the temple to worship God anymore. We are the temple. You are a walking, talking temple of God. And that will change everything about us. That will change the nature of all of our relationships. Pursue heaven now in our relationships. I've listed out a couple on our outline of relationships that will change because of the Holy Spirit inside of us. If you have Christ inside of you, if you belong to Jesus, then everything is different. One of the places that we should see God working is inside our marriages. He should be able to look inside our marriages and the world should be able to look inside our marriages and see heaven on earth. Some of you just got really uncomfortable really quick. I'm sorry, that's okay. Two equal parties sacrificially serving one another, loving one another, leading and submitting to the glory of the Father. The world should look in and say, what in the world is that? I want that. Another place is our church. Church, this place should be heaven on earth. It should be the Holy Spirit inside of me communing with the Holy Spirit inside of you. It should be us praying for one another, encouraging one another, building one another up, praying for healing, coming alongside one another. This should be utopia. This should be heaven on earth. Think of the picture of communion. Jesus Christ, the bread and the wine, coming together, partaking of the tree of life together, all of us together. You want a, free, you want a freebie? Here's, here's something. This is no charge. Jesus Christ, when he went to the hill of Calvary, he went up on top of a mountain. He was put on a tree, a tree made for death. And he turned it into a tree of life that anyone who comes and eats my flesh and drinks my blood, anyone who takes of these fruit will live forever. Jesus changes the rules changes everything. He is our tree of life. The last place that we can bring heaven here and now is in our world. And I know that sounds vague in general, but for us who have the Holy Spirit inside of us, when we go into a room, when we go into our coworkers, when we go into conversations, after we leave, there should be 
a sense, a smell. Uh, Jesus was here. God was here. Did you feel the grace? Did you feel the forgiveness? We should be leaving heaven in our wake. Our relationship with the world, we are the temple and we are moving through this world and we should have the kingdom in our wake. What we need, church, is a biblically ignited imagination for the things of heaven. Because if this has shown us anything, our visions of heaven are always way too small. The last place I would encourage us to seek out heaven is inside ourselves. Once again, I'm not going new age. But I'm saying, if the Holy Spirit is inside of you, then to pursue heaven is to pursue Christ. And to pursue Christ is to pursue heaven. You can't have one without the other. Because heaven is where God is. Know his Holy Spirit. Because the more we understand about heaven, the more we understand the one who made it all. We need to dream, church. We need to dream of heaven. Because life point, it is time to dream. Let us dream of heaven. Let us dream of the glories that are in front of us. Let us dream, because I promise, you can go take your imagination as far as you can, as far as you want, and God will say, that was a really great try. I can top that. Do you really think that you could outdo God in your mind, in your imaginations? Go ahead, imagine heaven. Imagine the most outlandish things you can possibly think of that are within the realm of Scripture. The one who gave you an imagination, do you think that you can trump that? We're shadows. We're like little bits. God can do so much more than we could think or imagine. Pursue Jesus Christ. Pursue heaven. And heaven comes to us, life point, to be that much closer. Let us dream of heaven. Will you pray with me? Holy God, we see that you have done the unthinkable. All throughout history, God, you have taken our expectations and you have shattered them and you build us up to even more. We try to think of heaven, but it's easy to think of lesser stars, lesser glories that take our attention, that distract us. Father, we pray today that you will fixate us on the North Star. You will fixate us on your promises. You will fixate us on the promise of heaven and the things, all the glories that you are gonna do in the future. We need you. We love you. And forgive us where we have not used our imaginations and we have not looked forward to your promise because it has distracted us and it has caused us to be taken captive by lesser things. We pray, God, during this time that you will light us up. Fill us with a holy imagination for you and your kindness, your glory, and the future that you have in front of us. And may we respond in worship for the God who has taken the junk that we are in, the sin and the evil that we swim in on a daily basis, and you say, I am gonna wipe every tear away and I am making all things new. I am making everything new. We look forward to that newness and we cannot wait. May you who have promised remain faithful and may you look on us and find us faithful in serving and loving and worshiping you. 
But this we pray in the mighty, holy, majestic, and glorious name of Christ we pray. Amen.